All right. Well, we're really lucky today to be joined by uh, joined by Catherine Howe. Um, Catherine, thank you very much for for your time. I know it's a really busy time. Um, you're probably getting pulled in several different directions with everything that's going on, but we really appreciate uh, you taking the time to join us today at, uh, at CSI Chat. Um, I'm going to go through Catherine's official background, which is extremely impressive. Um, Catherine is a New York Times bestselling and award-winning historian and novelist. She is the author of several novels uh, for adults and young adults and is the co-author with Anderson Cooper of the New York Times number one best-selling books, Vanderbilt and Astor, which are stories of the rise and fall of two prominent um, American families. Um, her newest novel is a mystery adventure set in the golden age of piracy called A True Account. Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself, was released in November. I have read the book. It is a fantastic read. And I would highly encourage everybody to, if you want a nice combination of a fiction book and a nonfiction book, pick up the book on the Astor family and pick up Catherine's book, um, A Story of the Pirates, a true account. I would highly recommend you take a read of, uh, of both of those. But first off, we need to get to know Catherine a little bit, uh, a little bit better. And what I thought I would do is tell the story about how Catherine and I sort of first met um, and, and, and first, uh, first connected and, and how we had first reached out. So. Um, if I roll the clock back to October, I was sitting over breakfast reading the the Toronto Sun here up here in in Toronto. And for those that know, I'm a I'm a sports fan. Toronto Sun has a great sports section for the record, but they also have a really good entertainment section that I that I enjoy reading. In the entertainment section section, there was a full spread article on um, Catherine's book, The Astor Family: um, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune, and it was a really good article on the uh, on the book itself. And I thought to myself, you know what? Let me try and reach out to Catherine and see if I can convince her to come on the uh, to come on the podcast. So I Google Catherine's name, and sure enough, she has her own website, which is which is great. In the website, in the top right hand corner, there's a little contact button that I thought that I would that I thought that I would click. So I click, and I'm all set to send an email, but then I realized there's like three or four disclaimers that I have to read through before I can actually send Catherine an email. And I'm thinking, reading these disclaimers, I said, you know what, I need to ask Catherine about these because there must be a really good story behind each one of these disclaimers because they're all very unique. So Catherine, what I thought would be fun okay. is to go through these disclaimers and per perhaps you can provide a little bit of context and a little bit of background behind these disclaimers, which I had to make sure I read Glad and make sure I cleared <laughs> before I actually decided to send you an email. So I'm going to go through the disclaimers and then you give us your perspective and your background on why these disclaimers are up on your website. Okay. Disclaimer number one. Unfortunately, Catherine is unable to assist with homework projects, including National History Day. Please read a history book. So Catherine, can you give us some context behind this disclaimer? Oh, I know that's a little bit of a grumpy one, I'm sorry to say, but there was a time, a brief time when National History Day was kind of the bane of my inbox. I don't wow. actually fully understand what National History Day is, but the upshot, my impression from the inquiries I've gotten over the years is that kids, like middle school or high school students, I think it's mostly middle, like junior high students, um, will choose a topic, I guess, I don't know if it's like a competition or something, but they'll choose a topic. And the version that I got was that they're supposed to interview an expert. So for whatever reason, I think there's like, there's like a year, like a theme for the, I don't know what happened. There was one year 
so I occasionally I would get like these trickling inquiries like I can tell from the internet that you are an expert in the Salem witch trials. I'm like, okay, so you Googled and then you click the first name that came up. Like, I get that. Um, and I would really love to just have a quick 30 minute zoom with you to talk about, you know, the Salem witch trials. And there was one year when I got, and I'm not exaggerating, over 350 emails exactly like that, being like, just asking for only 30 minutes of my time to talk about the Salem witch trials. And finally, I was like, guys, this is, this is, I, you know, if I did, I, I once worked out the math. If I answered everyone's inquiry and said yes, that would be a solid month of eight hours a day of just answering. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, what if, what if there were a technology where one person's ideas could be disseminated to a large group of people? Oh, wait, there is. It's called books. <laughs> and so like, periodically I would answer and I'd be like, if you want to know anything that I, that I have to say about the Salem witch trials, because so the reason for this is because my first adult novel is the Physic Book of Deliverance Stain, which was a Salem witch novel that, that sold very well. And then I did a young adult novel called Conversion, which was about Salem from the afflicted girl's perspective. And I edited a volume called The Penguin Book of Witches, which is a primary source reader about witchcraft in North America, including Salem. And it has all these essays, and it's got primary sources, and it's got footnotes. And the number of times I responded saying, I unfortunately don't have time to do this, but, but you know, you can read this book. I got a lot of very sniffy responses, like, I'm not going to buy your book. I'm like, really? well, I mean, you know, or I, I got one from a, a woman who actually was writing on behalf of her middle schooler's son. He's doing high school level work. and I can't see. And I'm like, I'm like, lady, if you're writing to me, you're the one doing the high school level work, not your son. And so it's also a little bit of a mystery to me because, you know, historians don't interview experts. That's what journalists do. Historians read primary sources and secondary sources. And so like the whole underpinning assumption of National History Day that you should talk to an expert is uh, misguided to begin with. So that is the reason for my, my grumpy, please, 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 please don't ask me to Zoom with you for 30 minutes so that you can have me explain to you what caused the Salem witch trials. That, that's, that's, not, that's not why we're here. See, I knew there was a good backstory. That was, <laughs> I, 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 knew that, I knew there I was a whole a backstory, backstory to that. <laughs> it's, it, the backstory is me being a crank. That's, that's the backstory. No, that, but, but also like... That's fair. 350 also, <laughs> emails, 350 requests for 30 minutes of your time. Yeah, that's going to add up uh, over, over a year. And I'm guessing well, but, you're not getting paid for that uh, Well, that like time. A, couple, a couple of people offered to pay me, but that's not fair either because then the kids who can't afford to pay or whatever, like, like on the one hand, I have to value my time. On the other yes. hand, like I don't like saying no to kids, especially kids who are beginning to be interested in history but at the same time like like i actually have to like, i have a job i have to pay for my house like you know i've got montessori bills for my son like you know it's and just there is not... this thing called a library where the books are free you know and, and i would think that most most jurisdictions the there are multiple libraries and yes. several you know a lot of them are within walking distance of the house so well, yeah there's no uh, yeah. excuses public yeah. libraries school libraries you know and, yeah. and libraries will often buy books this is a good public service announcement um, to any any kids who are listening who are going to do National History Day, your public library will buy books for you if 100%. you ask them to. 100%. And so, um, yeah, so that that is the reason for my rather grumpy. I will not. I'm not available to help with your homework. And I finally en ended up having to outsource um, those answering those inquiries to an imaginary assistant. Oh, nice. I have an imaginary assistant who writes my most uh, my most you know troubling let down emails for for me. 
um, she shares the name of one of my book protagonists, but like 99.9% .9 of the time, no, these people have never read anything that I've written. So they don't know that they're being let down by, by my book protagonist. All right. Well, there's disclaimer number one. That mm -hmm. is a great, great story. Now, disclaimer. You're not going to ask me to help you with your homework, are you? Yeah, no, 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 okay, no, good. no. I, that is uh, that is off the list. I, that was originally going to be one of my initial requests when I saw the disclaimer, Catherine. I'm saying, you know what? I better figure it out myself with my with my <laughs> kids. I'm sending them straight to the library. Good. <laughs> disclaimer number two. Catherine is unable to forward correspondence to Anderson Cooper. So perhaps you can provide a little bit of context behind this particular disclaimer. Yes. Well, so I've co-authored two books with Anderson now, Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty, which came out in 2021, and Aster, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune, which came out in 2023. And it was such great fun working on these books, and we worked really hard on them, and we're really proud of them. But it also, Anderson, as you can imagine, is busy. Yes. And famous and so um it is i assume a little bit harder to get a hold of him than it is to get a hold of me <laughs> i have a website with a form you can just fill out and so many is the time i've either received you know remarks about the books with an explicit request to please share them with him or more commonly it will be a kind of roundabout trying to get on his schedule using me as the Jimmy. It'll be like, you know, oh, we'd really love to have you at our festival. And maybe if Anderson could come too. And I'm like, okay. Um, but, you know, I, I do not have access to his schedule. We don't share a calendar. We don't hang out. Like, he's a wonderful man, and I really enjoy working with him, and we have a great working relationship, and I would love to continue it. And I have no insight whatsoever into, like, his publicity apparatus. I am not your path to Anderson. If you would like to talk to me, you may talk to me. If you would like to invite me to your festival, I will gladly probably come to your festival. Um, I am not the, I'm not the shortcut. I'm not the patent. Again, another very good backstory to that so, particular disclaimer, Kathy. I don't know how so, good it is, Scott, but I appreciate you not trying to be sort of backdoor it and be like, when maybe Anderson could, and I'm like, nope, 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 nope. 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 I, I agree. So now the third disclaimer. This one was actually the one I was most confused about um, <laughs> of the of the three disclaimers that are on the website. Is Catherine is not a ghostwriter, although she occasionally writes ghost stories. And again, I was thinking to myself, <laughs> there must be a good story behind that particular disclaimer as well. So when Vanderbilt came out, I heard from a number of people. <laughs> who thought that I would be the one to tell their story. This oh is, this God. is, this, which is flattering, of course. Like on the one hand, it's, it's quite flattering. Um, on the other hand, I heard from really a pretty large number of people. And their assumption was that the way it would work would be they're the idea man and this story needs to be told. That was a phrase that was, that was really deployed quite a lot in a lot of my correspondence. But this story needs to be told. Spoiler, no story actually needs to be told, usually, for the most part. Um, and so I got a lot of inquiries where people hoped that their fascinating story would be something I would write up and then we would sell it and split the money. And I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> that's also not how it works. You know, I, I write fiction largely on spec. That is my own job. Um, and if you want to hire me to write something, that will cost money. 
I see. Um, and so, but, you know, for the most part, that my answer was, was sort of met with shock and dismay. Like, what? But it's such an amazing idea. And I'm like, mm, is it though? Is it really? So um, I, do, I do refer people to, I do do some, you know, editorial and book consulting a little bit, kind of, you know, on the side, sort of sotto voce um, here and there. But I charge for it. It costs money. And, um, and also, you know, usually my response is, you know, it sounds like a really interesting story. I think you're the one to write your story. And um, fortunately, the Authors Guild, of which I'm a member, I've been a member of the Authors Guild for a very long time, has a marketplace where you can look for editorial and ghostwriting services. Like there, there, that is available. Interesting. But it costs money. Um, and so, you know, uh, there's, there's this funny, I think, sometimes a funny assumption that, um, that writing isn't work. And maybe it's because, uh, maybe it's because it's an avocation for so many people, um, like music, you know, plenty of people make music because they, they love to do it, but there are people who make music and that's their job and that's yeah. how they support themselves. And so I think, I think for a lot of people in creative fields, um, you know, being able to insist on the value of your time is, uh, is, is an important thing to do. Again, another very good backstory to Scott, that. You're not going to ask me to write your story, are you? I know there's nothing to write, Catherine. We'll there, 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 it would be very, you know what? You'd probably, yeah, exactly. It would be, it would be a nice one pager. Like okay. it would be, you know, you'd actually, for a return, a, a return it, you know, the cost would be minimal because, yeah, it would be a couple sentences and that's about it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe it is something we, 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 we collaborate on in the future. Now, again, there'd be no revenue sharing because anything times zero is zero. Right. But, um, but, but it would be quick. It, it would certainly be quick. Yes. It's a trade off. Yes. It's a trade off. And that's not to say that I didn't like there. Were, I was very fortunate. First of all, it was quite flattering. Second of all, you know, a lot of people reached out with very personal things. And many people do have really fascinating stories. And I also understand that like attack, tackling, you know, a personal story is daunting. And I understand all of those things. Um, but, I, you know, I, it's one of those things where I wasn't able to, there's no way I could have accepted all of the inquiries that, that came my way. Well, the, the one thing you get from reading the Astor book is the amount of detail that yeah. goes into that goes into the book um and the, yeah. like you can just envision as you're reading it um i think i I'd, I'd heard you made a comment one point that where where you and anderson spent a lot of time in the public library um in in and i think in the mm-hmm. astor library or or in the, the, the astor room new york, yeah, working the, on the, it new york new york public library um which which grew out of so i had a i had like a they have a center for the humanities there and i was a researcher that was based at the center for humanities for a number of years for um and it, which is wonderful because then you get kind of dedicated support from librarians and you get workspace and it's it's just such an amazing institution and the new york public library came about partly from the merging of the astor library which was one of the first public libraries founded in new york city by the astor family and the tilden library so when you walk through the schwarzman building so the sort of like main building of the new york public library which first of all is beautiful and worth a visit if anyone who happens to pass through manhattan um, it's right on bryant park on fifth avenue and 42nd street and um you know it's got this wonderful palatial entrance hall that is astor hall it's named for because brooke astor while she was alive was still um you know a major patron of the new york public library yeah, and I could just imagine the amount of hours that you spent in that library because the detail in the book is <laughs> phenomenal. Like again, it is not you. You, you know, 
what we're just going to take somebody's account of their story. And it is, mm-hmm. you know, you can just tell that, that, you know, verifying all of the, the information and going through all the, none of a lot of it is readily available either. Like I, I I'm guessing you can't Google this stuff. So it, it's <laughs> hard work to, to, uh, to pull it. The last interesting tidbit, this is not in your website, but I did find it on your Twitter feed at one point is. Oh no. That Catherine puts hot sauce on everything. Now, my question here is Catherine mm-hmm. is when you say everything, do you mean everything? And I'm I mean, thinking like salads and desserts and things I like, like where salads. does it, where does it stop? There wasn't I a qualification in, in your, in your, in your, on your, on your Twitter feed. Well, so, so that, yeah, a couple of people have asked me that uh, actually. And so there are a couple of things, a couple of ways to explain it. Way number one is I am a displaced Texan. I'm a okay. Texpat. So <laughs> I have been living, <laughs> I'm a Texpat. <laughs> Who has been living and in fact, on my, I have a little sailboat and on my sailboat, I fly a Texan uh, state flag, which is also the Texas State Navy ensign. I fly it off my backstay because you're supposed to identify yourself if you are, of, you know, in foreign waters. I have to like have my, my national ensign hanging on the back of the, back of the boat. Um, for, for something like three years, Texas was republic in the 19th century for like this long. And Texans are very proud of that. So I'm a, I'm a Texpat and, um, and I'm living in the Northeast. And as you're probably aware, um, Northeast cuisine is not famously flavorful. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so I'm from a region where um, we have much spicier food on average. You know, I'm I'm from a big city called Houston, which has um, a really polyglot population. And so there's a lot of like South Asian cuisine. There's a lot of Mexican cuisine. There's Tex-Mex, which is distinct from Mexican. There is... um, Southern, obviously. I, I didn't know soul food was like a thing. I thought soul food was just food until I moved to New York. Um, and so, uh, and like Vietnamese food is, is really big. And, you know, there's, there's just a lot of cultures in play in Houston. And so I'm accustomed to food that is very spicy and peppery. I see. So I put hot, hot sauce on um, salad. I will put it on hamburgers. I mean, I'm veggie, so it's veggie burgers. Um, I will put it on French fries. I will put it on pizza. I'll put it on pasta. I'll put it on pasta with pesto. Um, pretty like just about anything. Like like, and okay. you have to have you have to have an array of hot sauces too. You, because like there's certain like you can't put sriracha in gumbo. That's just wrong. You have to put Tabasco in gumbo. Um, sriracha, however, is really good on pizza. I highly recommend it because it's got a little bit of a, a sweetness to it. So stuff like that. And then the other part of it that I learned. So years ago, my husband and I were, um, he was a fellow and I got to be a resident scholar at an institute that is at Stanford uh, where people, so they bring together people in the social sciences who are studying disparate things. And there was someone there who was like studying taste, taste and smell and the ways that that related to certain perceptual, perceptual things. And this scholar was, she was a super taster. And also a super smeller. So she was one of those people where like, like she, she's one of those like onophiles. She's someone who can smell the wine and tell you all the different notes and all the different things and, and so forth. And apparently super tasters actually have to eat really bland food because it's overwhelming otherwise. And so one day she did a thing for the scholars and, and fellows and residents to let like to evaluate how good we were at tasting things. And what was fascinating is I learned I am a subpar taster and I'm a subpar hmm. smeller. Without a visual cue, I couldn't tell the difference between rosemary or thyme. I couldn't tell the difference between nutmeg and cinnamon. 
like it was stunning. I was really kind of mind blown how dependent I was on visual cueing to understand what I was eating. And it turns out that um, that's one reason why I really like hot sauce on everything because without hot sauce, I just don't taste anything. Really. Interesting. So that is the, the backstory. Although one time it was very charming because I, I once did a book event somewhere and I don't remember where it was. And someone like, the organizer for the book event actually gave me as a welcome gift a giant bottle of Texas Pete hot sauce. <laughs> that's nice. Yes, it was very sweet. Well, that's great. So we've learned a lot about yeah. you. Thankfully, See? I worked my way through the disclaimers. You did. And we connected. And here we are, here we are today. Mm -hmm. um, and before we get into Aster, we're going to talk a little bit about your background because your background is more on the fiction side. It's true. And what would be great to talk about is your newest book, A True Account. Again, I've, I've read it. It's a, it's a fantastic book. It arrived right around November 21st when it first, uh, when it first came out. I'm glad you enjoyed it. What I was surprised about. So um, as somebody who likes action movies mm -hmm. and, you know, violence and, sure. you know, you like, you know, you like action. I was surprised of the level of action and violence that was actually in this book because yeah, me too. my my water experience is limited to cruise ships sure what i learned catherine was that life on a cruise ship is quite a bit different than life on a pirate ship accurate especially if you are a young girl mm -hmm. who is pretending to be a boy Right. On that uh, on that pirate ship. So maybe mm -hmm. just give us a little bit of background on on your novel and and sure. how this um, how this came to be. Sure, sure. Um, and in fact, you're not the first person to remark on the violence in a true account, which initially took me a little bit by surprise because on average, I am a very PG thirteen writer. I don't have a lot of language usually. You know, like my first novel, Physic Book of Deliverance Dane. Is is it's an adult novel, but it was read by lots of people in high school and even in middle school. And even like at one point, a book at a book event, a nine year old girl came and she had she had read it. And that content wise is fine. Like I don't have a lot of sex, I don't have a lot of violence, um, and if I do, it will be fleeting and usually shocking. And so I was really taken aback when at first some of the early like Goodreads reviews and stuff were like, "This book's really violent." It and is, it gives, <laughs> and it is, it is, and it, but it gives you a sense of like how much time I spent in the primary sources for this book that I kind of didn't notice that until someone else had pointed it out. Um, and and then once I started thinking about it, I was like, "Okay, well, there's this thing that happens, and then there's that, and then there's that. All right, and then okay, and then once I started tallying it up, I was like, "Oh wow, this is a really kind of an intense." violent book. So it is. But um, but I will also add that virtually none of the violence in a true account is from my imagination. Um, virtually all of it is actually from the primary sources. It's stuff that actually happened. It's so like we're talking about a world of really sometimes staggering uh, brutality. So a true account opens in Boston in 1726 in the summer with a girl named Hannah Missouri who's been bound out to service in a waterfront tavern called Ship Tavern, which was a real place, um, which had already been, it doesn't exist anymore, but in 1726, it was already almost 100 years old and had been serving, you know, the waterfront in Boston um, in all that time. And Hannah, being bound out to service was actually not that unusual um, for some families who couldn't afford to keep all the children that they had. It was not that strange for a couple of them to be given away to essentially work, you know, for them or for their keep. Wow. Um, so perhaps one of the most notorious people in the Salem witch trials, since as you 
have now learned, I've written a lot about Salem in my fiction and in nonfiction. You know, one of the most notorious people, one of the names most of us know from the Salem Witch Trials is Abigail Williams. She's the one who is in Arthur Miller, who's dramatized as kind of a, a tart uh, in her teens. But in real life, she was an 11-year-old girl who was bound out to service in the household of the minister of Salem Village. So she was a child, but she had been given away by her family. So Hannah is, we never learn exactly how old Hannah is. She is in her late teens, thereabouts. She's meant to be about 17. And she has been working her whole life. So she is a very, she's, she's living a very unprivileged and very circumscribed kind of life. And she happens to attend the hanging of a pirate named William Fly. And this was a real thing that happened in June or June and July in Boston in 1726. A guy named uh, William Fly, who was a mariner, was uh, working on a ship called the Elizabeth, a merchant ship. And he was subject to what he called hard usage in the primary source documents. You don't know what that means, but it just it could just mean abuse. You know, it, it was, you know, a life at sea was a hard life. And apparently he was driven to the brink and he and a couple of Confederates ended up staging a mutiny. They murdered the sailing master and they threw him overboard and then threw over the like his second in command and they took control of the ship and they renamed it the Fame's Revenge and they went pirating off the coast of the Carolinas. Well, the trick is, and once again, this is all true. This all really happened. Um, the trick is that sailing a ship from the age of sail is one skill set, but navigating is actually an entirely separate skill set. And so William Fly didn't have a navigator. He didn't know how to like wayfind, essentially. So they kidnapped a fisherman, and they were going to make the fisherman um, tell them how to get to Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off the coast of Massachusetts, where they could get food and water, and then they could carry on. Now, piracy at this time was a felony, so they knew if they got caught, it was curtains for, for everybody. There's really no way around it. Um, and so, you know, it gives you a sense of the fact that they would undertake piracy knowing that that was what lay in store for them gives you a sense of exactly how brutal their life had been up until that one. So the fisherman tricks William Fly, and instead of taking them to Martha's Vineyard, he takes them all the way outside Cape Cod to outside of Boston, because the fisherman happens to know that, that there's increasing sort of enforcement of anti-piracy statutes and that he's likely to be rescued if he takes them outside of Boston. And that's what happens. The ship is captured. The pirates are dragged, on, dragged, to, dragged to jail in chains. And they are, then they are subject to kind of a, a series of public humiliations, in effect. And there's a historian named Marcus Redeker who's written a lot about the, um, the uses of terror in piracy, that not only in the part of the pirates, that it was in a pirate's interest to be terrifying because then it was more likely that ships would just give up without a fight. Um, but he's also pointed out that in the state would then use a rhetoric of terror in order to try to frighten people out of turning to piracy. So William Fly and his Confederates were first taken to church. They were preached at uh, by Cotton Mather, the same guy who presided over the Salem Witch Trials, who was trying to bring them back to God and also to a position of public penitence. You know, he wanted to force the pirates to saying publicly that they had done the wrong thing and that the right thing to do was to obey authority. And when the day came for William Fly and his Confederates to be executed, um, William Fly did a pretty remarkable thing. First, he mounted the scaffolding. He looked at the noose. Again, 
I'm going to emphasize this all really happened. He looked at the noose, said to the hangman, don't you know your trade? And then retied it better because he's a sailor, right? Puts it over his head. And then for his last words, they want him, authority in Massachusetts Bay wants him to be penitent and to speak because a whole crowd has gathered. You know, the idea of living in a culture that revels in public execution is itself kind of a question we can explore. Um, but that is the culture that they were living in at that time. And William Fly says, Masters of vessels, do it well by your men, lest they be put upon doing as I have done. So he doesn't say he's sorry. And then he's hanged. And then there's one other step talking about a rhetoric of terror. And apologies for any listeners with, with tender stomachs. But again, I didn't make this up. This really happened. William Fly was hanged, and everyone watched him hang. But then, he was gibbeted. And being gibbeted is when your body is hung in chains in a public place and left to rot. Yeah. So William Fly's body was gibbeted on a rock in Boston Harbor. There's a series of islands in Boston Harbor called the Boston Harbor Islands. And one of those is a little rock called Nix's Mate. And William Fly's body was left to rot on Nix's Mate. So I have Hannah, I have my fictional character watch this happen. She watches the, she sees them at church, she watches them hang, and then she gets caught up in some intrigue um, around the pirates, and she ends up having to flee for her life in disguise. And the way that she flees for her life is she disguises herself as a cabin boy. And this is a time period when gendered clothing choices were really prescribed. You know, like it would not, she would not have just had the option of wearing breeches and a blouse if she had wanted to, you know, and so it was. And we can argue the, the merits of her disguised back and forth if you'd like, but she disguises herself. She ships out on what she thinks is a fruit packet bound for the Azores. And instead, it turns out to be a pirate ship um, run by a, a real pirate, Ned Lowe, who in the fictional universe of a true account is a confederate of William Fly's. And they pass by Nix's mate, and she sees William Fly's body left there to hang. And that's what starts kind of the action in the story. So of the course of her adventure, some, you know, there's some bizarre and, and troubling things that happen, but much of the bizarre and troubling things that happen are things that Ned Lowe really did. He was a real person. And, um, and, you know, and then we end up following Hannah's adventure. And then there's a, there's sort of a parallel story that happens as well. So the reason that a true account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates written by herself has such a long title is because books in the 18th century had these long-winded titles. It was, it was a time when the novel as a form was beginning to come into existence, but they did have bestsellers. You know, people gobbled up accounts of, um, you know, redeemed captives or castaways or, or things like that. Pirates, actually. Um, there were best-selling books about pirates and highway robbers in the 18th century. And so we're reading along and following Hannah's story for about 40 pages. And then all of a sudden, and it's in first person, and all of a sudden we realize we're actually reading over someone's shoulder. And that person's shoulder is a woman named Marion Beresford, who is a professor at Radcliffe in 1929. And a student of hers has brought her this primary source. So Marion has been reading a primary source called A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates Written by Herself, which is, so it's the title of the book within the book. And Marion then quickly has to figure out if Hannah's true account is actually true. 
And of course, because it's a pirate story, there's a there's a treasure hunting element to it because you've got to do it. There's a parrot. You've got to have a parrot. I have a lot of fun um, making links to Treasure Island, which is sort of the classic, the most classic of all classic pirate stories. Um, but it also, the book also raises some questions that I found fun to think about, about the nature of trust and trustworthiness in fiction, and also about um, representation and, and image and the ways that we all have to kind of assume these personae in order, especially for, for women, to ensure our safety. Well, and, and there's a unique love story that's baked into it as well, there right? Is, that, there is, is that is very that uh, love story too. You, you know that I that I thought also was was very was was very unique to say the mm-hmm. least, right? Just in terms mm-hmm. of the way. Well, again, I don't want to give it away. It was, it was yeah. just very unique and not not expected. You, yeah, you, it was, you know, it was a little bit of a it was a little bit of a surprise. Again, nothing too 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 graphic. A big. I'm very square. Well, it is what it is. Life on a pirate ship was rough, you, you, was. you know, and, 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 and your book certainly demonstrates, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, the risk of, you know, mutinies and, and there's nowhere to go, right? There's like nowhere if, to go. if there's a mutiny and you got to get rid of the folks that aren't on your side, there's not a lot of options in terms no. of where they go, right? It's true. Well, I mean, so the, I, this quote is referenced in the novel itself, but it's one that I think about a lot. And it's a very famous Samuel Johnson quote, which is that, um, that essentially being in the Navy is like being in prison, but with the added risk of being drowned. That's right. Which is yeah. true because mm-hmm. you ha- you live in this very rigid hierarchical, and also this is also the time of both enslavement, of course, and impressment. Um, this is a time when you could be minding your own business and um, you know living your life and having a family and a wife and children, and all of a sudden get grabbed by the scruff of the neck and thrown into a Royal Navy ship and stuck there for three years, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. So it is a time of um, radical unfreedom, and piracy, in some regards, represents a gesture towards radical freedom. Yeah. So you transition from fiction books to nonfiction books with mm-hmm. uh, with Anderson, mm-hmm. and and I guess the one similarity between the two is that both are history books to some right. degree, right? Is that, yes. is that they're both history books, but maybe just talk a little bit about that transition. How did that happen mm-hmm. going from fiction to nonfiction? Well, and I mean, so I started, it wasn't exactly a transition quite the way that you're characterizing it, but it's, it's not far off. I mean, I started writing fiction while I was in a graduate program in American studies and American studies is like interdisciplinary American history, basically. And so my background before that was in, um, museums and art history, believe it or not. And so um, while doing graduate work, I was focused on American visual and material culture, which is to say stuff, stuff yeah. and images and you know the objects in which culture is disseminated, which I think if you read any of my work um, is pretty readily apparent because I love my settings. I just revel in them. I lavish around in the setting perhaps too much. Um, and so, but in each case, you know, every novel that I've done has been very, pretty intensely grounded in historiography. And often I will have, in fact, all the time, I will have an author's note at the end of any given novel that talks a little bit about the research that was done and what I changed and what I didn't change and what the rationales were for those changes. So I was always approaching fiction in my, so a lot of historical fiction, you know, looks at wealthy and powerful people, um, you know, kings, queens, Wolf Hall, what have you. Um, but I've always been 
more motivated by stories of people who are not the kind of people who would leave a record of themselves in the archive. I feel like historical fiction is a really kind of beautiful avenue for exploring. You know, Hannah Missouri, the way I characterize her, did not exist. But people living her life did. And we don't know anything about them because they were literate. She wasn't, you know, they wouldn't leave a record of themselves. They didn't matter. And so I feel like in historical fiction, there's a real opportunity for coloring in some of those kinds of experiences. The story could have existed, right? Like like Hannah Missouri could way, have existed. Yeah, yeah. And that and, and there could have been a very similar person to that who had, who had a very similar experience. Maybe she not exactly the same, but for something similar. Something similar, something something not too dissimilar in any case. So the way that the collaboration, and, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, in 2014, I released an edited volume called The Penguin Book of Witches, which contains, um, so it's primary sources about witchcraft in England and North America from the 1500s up until the early part of the 19th century. And that contains contextualizing essays and annotations and notes. And, and so I was accustomed to writing about history and talking about history, but for a popular audience. So the way that Anderson's project came to me was, um, you know, word went out that he wanted to write a history book about the Vanderbilts. Um, and so the thought was that, you know, writing a history book is actually a very particular kind of animal. Like he had already written a memoir of his time as a foreign correspondent, and he had written a book with his mom that was a collection of their correspondence, and I'm talking about their family and their relationship. But he wanted to have a more historical approach. So he was going to need a co-author who had history chops, but who was accustomed to writing for a popular audience. Because when talking about the Vanderbilts, <clears throat> excuse me, one second. Pardon me. Duffy knows. Um, when talking about the Vanderbilts, you could have a number of different approaches. You know, you could do a business history approach that looks in great detail at the railroads, you know, Cornelius Vanderbilt's railroad business and shipping businesses. And um, that has been beautifully done by a historian named T.J. Stiles in a book called The First Tycoon. Um, but so he was kind of casting around trying to figure out what the book could be and who the best collaborator would be. And I found out later he told me how I got the job. And I got the job apparently. So first I met with the, you know, the publisher and, and the editor and kind of gave them a pitch of what I thought the book could look like. You know, it could look like this, look like that. And I thought it would be fun to have sort of an episodic book that looked at character, like treated members of the family as characters and that looked at particular sort of hanging around one particular kind of watershed event, but then you could fill in some of the backstory around each character. And so I kind of passed that first round, and then I got to have a meeting with Anderson and his, his team. And we had a conversation about what we thought the book could be. And I said, in the course of that conversation, I said, well, we have to have a chapter, obviously, about Alba's Ball. And they're like, what's that? And Alba's Ball was in, so I hadn't realized this until I, until I started researching the Vanderbilts. I thought Vanderbilt is an old Dutch name. It's got to be an old Dutch family. I didn't really understand until getting into the research for it that the Vanderbilts in the Gilded Age were regarded as new money. They were regarded as Arivists. And it was the brainchild of one woman who married into the Vanderbilt family that broke them into high society. And that woman was named Alva Erskine Smith. She was a daughter of the Confederacy. Um, also, I think a lot of people don't realize that New York City was kind of a copperhead community during the Civil War, which is to say that New York City is despite being in the Union, 
um, their sympathies lay with the Confederacy for the most part, for reasons I can bore you with and not as you prefer. So this Southern Belle essentially married into the Vanderbilt family, and she made it her project to break them in. And she did this by throwing the best party that has ever been thrown. She threw a costume ball in uh, March of 1883. First, she enlisted. So high society at that time was ruled by Caroline Astor, the Mrs. Astor. And Caroline Astor had a right-hand man named Ward McAllister, who himself was a Southerner. He was from Savannah, Georgia, and he was a professional snob. He had gone to Europe, and he knew all the fashionable dances, and he knew all the food, and he knew all the people, and he was, he was the guy, you know. And so Alva Vanderbilt, first she enlisted Ward McAllister to help her plan her party. She planned her party to take place in a time of the season, like after the big, busy social season had ended, so there was nothing else going on. She also was kind of masterful at dropping these little hints to the press about what the party could be like. And so everyone was just a Twitter about this. And by the way, when, you, when I say you're going to have a costume party in 1883 in the Gilded Age, I don't mean you're just going to put on a pair of bunny ears and call it a day. You're going to right away to Worth and order your bespoke couture fancy dress gown on whatever theme, you know, the Duke de Guise or, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette or, you know, there's all these sort of splendiferous costumes. And photographs of these costumes, by the way, are all extant. You can see them at the New York Historical Society, and some of them are really staggering. So the way that Alva actually triumphed and entered New York society was because everyone knew that this party was going to happen and all the young people were so excited. And this was a time period when one of the big events in the party would be the dancing of quadrilles, which were these very structured thematic dances. And dancing really well in a quadrille, you would earn a party favor. So like all the gift, the gift bags at little kids' birthday parties today are kind of a, like the last remnant of this social phenomenon of the favor, where if you danced really beautifully, you'd get like a ribbon you could wear, you'd get a little brooch, you'd get a pin or what have you. So Caroline Astor had a daughter named Carrie, who was newly out in society, and Carrie was beside herself excited about Alva Vanderbilt's ball. She was practicing her quadrille steps, she was ready to go, and then Alva let it be known that tragically, Carrie could not be invited to the ball. And the reason for it was because Caroline Astor had never called upon Alva Vanderbilt. And calling was this kind of very stylized theater of social networking, where on a given day, you would, the carriage would drive and you would leave a card at each house. And it was how you, like you wouldn't often, you wouldn't even go in and visit. Often you would just leave your card and it was sort of like a, like, do you remember in the early days of Facebook when you could poke people? Mm -hmm. It was a little, it was a little bit like that, I think. So Caroline Astor had never called on Mrs. Vanderbilt. And this is actually kind of a masterful move on Alva's part because she is being rigorously correct in her performance of the social niceties of Gilded Age New York. And Caroline realizes she's been maneuvered into a corner because either Either she holds the line, doesn't acknowledge Alva Vanderbilt, and risks the party being a success, losing her influence, and also Carrie being furious at her. 
and also Carrie maybe missing an opportunity. She's out in society. It's missing a social opportunity for Carrie. Or Caroline Astor has to fold. So she folds. So one day, her carriage rolls away from her Fifth Avenue mansion on Murray Hill, rolls one mile up Fifth Avenue to Alva Vanderbilt's house. <clears throat> a footman approaches the door, knocks on the door, presents a card. It is accepted by another footman. The women do not meet. And then the carriage rolls away. But by performing that theater, um, Alva is officially recognized by Caroline Astor. Caroline Astor ends up attending the ball. Carrie attends the ball. The ball is a smashing success. And the following year, Alva is invited to Mrs. Astor's annual opera ball. And the Vanderbilts have officially arrived. So I tell this story. This is not how I got the job. I do tell this story, but that is not what got me the job. What got me the job was when I described the costume worn by Miss Kate Fearing Strong to this party. Now, Miss Kate Fearing Strong went costumed as a cat. Her costume consisted of a ball gown made of white cat tails, bodice, a hat made of a full taxidermied white cat with eyes and ears and nose and whiskers and the whole thing, and a black velvet choker with the, the letters in diamonds spelling puss. And from the angle of the way she's sitting in the picture that I've seen of her, it's, it's possible it says pussy. <laughs> okay, so I described this outfit to this room full of very important influential people, and they're all just like staring at me agog. <laughs> and apparently, um, sometime later, Anderson told me that it was, uh, it was my description of Miss Kate Fearing Strong's costume that got me the job as his collaborator on Vanderbilt. That's a great story. <laughs> um, we are taping this interview. Mm -hmm. We are discussing this a couple of days after Succession raked up a number Ooh. of Golden Globe Awards. Um, so and, and Succession is, call it a current, uh, um, a, a current day rise and fall. For sure. And my question, I guess, is twofold for you, Catherine, is that is mm -hmm. there any... Um, uh, link between the release of six, the first season of Succession in 2018 um, mm. and the Vanderbilt book going out in 2021 is is that a any sort of a link? And the second part of that would be clearly again people love Succession. It is a fantastic, uh, fantastic. It's not an it accident. Great. They they were uh, racking in Golden Globe after Golden yeah. Globe. That, that, that great, is certainly not an accident. It, why do people love rise and fall stories? So is there a link between the two? Is that kind of what you think was one of the reasons why Vanderbilt was so popular? And then number two is why, why, why do we love rise and fall? Do we love, mm. are we jealous? Are we, do, do we love watching all the, all the, you know, the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous? What do you think it is? Oh, it, you know, I think it's, it's a little hard to answer that question. I mean, I have some theories, obviously. Um, I enjoyed Succession very much. Um, the book, we started talking about the book <coughs> in 2018. And I finally got the, the go-ahead to start working on it in February of 2019. And Anderson has talked about the fact that he wanted to have, he wanted to grapple with the Vanderbilt legacy, that he, he has spoken about this many times in public, that he, when he was growing up, felt 
had really conflicted feelings about being connected to the Vanderbilt family and, and always preferred to identify more with his father's family. And um, so I think, I think for some, ex for some, to some extent, the timing of the book had more to do with just like what he was thinking about. And of course, around before that, that book came out, um, it was actually a little bit exciting. I found out I was going to be helping with that book the same week I found out I was going to have a baby, <laughs> and, um, which was itself a little bit exciting. And I was very concerned, as you can imagine, that like, oh, gosh, you know, he's going to put a delay and, and how's that going to work? When I finally spilled the beans, turns out he was going to have a baby, too. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So his son, his first son, uh, Wyatt, was born a couple of months after my son was born. Um, so, so we had a little bit of a delay as both of us explored parenting for the first time. And then, of course, COVID happened. And uh, it's, it's still kind of a wonder to me that we were able to finish that book with as, with as little archive access as we had, um, given the time in which it was written. Um, that being said, you asked, why do we love these kinds of stories? And it's funny, you know, William Waldorf Astor quit New York in a huff. He, he's the guy who founded the, uh, the Waldorf half of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And he did it after he had uh, tried to run for a political office in New York City and been roundly rejected. And he tried to, rather bizarrely, a number of Astors really dreamed of being historical novelists, which I find completely surreal to, follow, to, to contemplate. Um, he, he was kind of a failed novelist. And then he ended up quitting New York in a huff and moving to Britain and working his darndest. He's the one who founded the British Astor family, essentially. He ended up worming his way into, into a peerage by reigning enough money in the right places. Finally, he was accepted and he got a title. And he complained, and I think there's something to this, that there's something undemocratic about levels of wealth like that. That like on the one hand, like that American culture did not have a legitimate way for you to be a gentleman in the way that British culture, I don't know if this still holds true, this is a debatable point, but arguably British culture has a category of existence which is the idle wealthy gentleman. And in American culture, we don't have that. We don't respect it, really. Like, like the people that we tend to lionize who are wealthy and successful are wealthy and successful because they have done something, you know, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. They play a sport really well. They make music really well. You know, even, even Kim Kardashian, who initially did nothing. She has a, she has a genius for self-promotion and self-invention, and then she made an underwear line that seems to be really working for people. Um, American culture is impatient with and dismissive of idle wealth. There's an expectation that wealth ought to be deployed in some way. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're not obsessed with wealth. I mean, look at, look at the, you know, the Met Gala red carpet or look at, you know, any of the kind of celebrity coverage. Look at Architectural Digest. I mean, we, we devour our wealth porn. And it's lifestyles of the rich and famous. That sure. is, I remember uh, the, lifestyles of the absolutely. rich and famous. Absolutely, Robin Leach. That's right. That's right. I remember right. it. Um, so it's Long not new. Years. It's certainly it's certainly not new, and it never has been new. I mean, in the Gilded Age, there actually were the Gilded Age was the beginning of gossip magazine culture. Believe it or not, there's a wonderful gossip magazine called Town Topics, which started in the eighteen I want to say the eighteen seventies and continued into the nineteen thirties. And Alva Vanderbilt's success, her social success, was based partly because she was so adept at self-promotion and about manipulations of the new kind of nascent society press. Um, so there is a funny tension. I mean, we, we are this culture that was founded 
on the explicit rejection of inherited titles. There's something essentially un-American about having a title. And at the same time, and, and we're also, we subscribe broadly to a fiction that we're all members of the middle class. You know, there isn't really a language to talk about class in American culture. And I think it was uh, Mark Twain who said that there will never be really a successful labor movement in the United States because we are all temporarily embarrassed millionaires, which is kind of true. Like there's this sense that like part of our, our interest or hunger for depictions of wealth is because we have this cultural fiction that the, the you know, that our ship will come in, you know, whether it's, who knows why, what is it? Is it basketball? Is it a football scholarship? Is it, mm-hmm the lottery is it you know who knows what it is um is it quitting college and making something in your garage which becomes the you know a personal computer we have we love our culture loves these stories um but at the same time we also love to see them dismantled because there is something (laughs) because there's something essentially undemocratic about wealth that great you know we have there's a real tension i feel like in american culture around our hunger for these stories and our pleasure in the dis- in the destruction of them. Um, I don't know how if it speaks all that well. I'm I'm speaking very broadly. I don't know if you would draw distinctions between Canadian culture and American culture. Um, there probably are distinctions to be drawn. I, I don't I, I don't think so. I I, yeah. I I I would agree with your comments, Catherine. Yeah. I I think people. <laughs> You just watch Succession, and mm-hmm. and and if you really if you really dig into what they're trying to keep, like the tensions within the family, and yeah. and and how, like, there's a lot there to, um, there's a lot of reasons why it's a, again, it's not just a, a, it's it's not just by chance that that show is so successful. Yeah. Is that if you look into how it was written and the mm-hmm. tensions that they're pulling on it, it's fascinating. Definitely, um, and the book. The, the Astro book is the exact same way. Yeah. Again, it is. The other thing, the other thing about the book that I, again, I really like is, is as you, as you're outlining is you're getting a picture into New York city in the mm-hmm. 1800s. It was such mm-hmm. a different time than, than, than New York city today. And again, it still it has, it wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> it, 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 wasn't. It, it, it still has. And the interesting thing too, is that if you walk the streets of New York city, you would see some of the, you would see some of the points that, um, or or some evidence of 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 the Astor of the Astor family, right? Oh, definitely. So, they, I mean, they wrote their names across the city in a way that the Vanderbilts didn't. But one thing that Anderson and I talked about, especially when working on the Vanderbilt book, but it continued. The conversation continued into working on the Astor book, and that was the the idea of money as a pathology. That uh, Cornelius <clears throat> Vanderbilt, who founded the Vanderbilt fortune. And who at one time controlled, I think it was something like one out of every twenty dollars in existence. Wow. Like something simply staggering proportionally. Um, that he had a self-professed mania for making money. <laughs> that he and that that mania for making money, you know, drove the interior in the internal structure of his family. It like splintered family relationships. It was this like real rot at the center of that family. And you see it to some degree in the Astor family too. I mean, the, you know, the Astor book ends with the rather tragic dissolution of, you know, the, the trial for how Brooke Astor was treated in her, in her old age um, by her son. And some of the, the real, like Brooke Astor was, was a incredible philanthropist. I mean, she, she 
deployed the Astor wealth all over New York City in ways that you cannot really argue that it, you know, for for the whether or not it was a good thing to do. I mean, like the 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 public institutions that benefited from Astor wealth are too many for me to name. I couldn't actually like I could name some of them: the library, the school system, the how New York State Housing Authority, the 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 zoo. Um, but you know, the the access to the money and the control of the money and the prestige that came with the money wrecked her relationship with her son, like completely yeah. tore it asunder. And so, you know, I don't know if it is my essentially, you know, American middle class perspective, but um, I, I've come away from both of those books feeling like our cultural obsession with wealth is in many ways very misguided. Well, here's another question for you, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Um, the correlation between money and wealth, uh, excuse me, between, between money and happiness after, after, cause there's a lot of discussion in the book about, you, you know, about how, um, you know, in some cases, how depressed some of these people uh, were sure. despite their wealth. And it just, after all of your research on these two books, do you think there's a correlation or there should be a correlation between happiness and wealth? Well, I mean, I think that, I think there are actually scholars who've done work on this, <laughs> you know, um, my understanding is that money does buy happiness up to a point. Like once you've secured, you know, food, food stability and housing stability and clothing stability and, you know, safety that like, we can't argue with the fact that wealth buys um, safety in our culture. It buys ease and it buys safety and it buys access to better food, to better education to probably higher water quality, to higher air quality. Therefore, it buys access to better health. Certainly in American culture, wealth buys better health care. Um, you know, the amount of medical debt that is crushing so many Americans is, is a real problem um, for our culture. And the fact that we don't have some kind of, the fact that we consider it's, that it's okay for health care to be a luxury good is appalling, I think. I think it's appalling. Um, you know, it gets you better prenatal care. It gets you, it gets you, wealth gets you better everything. Um, so we can't discount that. We can't discount how hard it is to not know where your next paycheck is coming from or to not know if your next paycheck is going to meet all your needs. Like we cannot discount that and the level of stress um, that that can cause. That being said, you know, after that point, assuming you get to a point of like basic needs met right? Then I think there are scholars who've demonstrated that your happiness is sort of dependent on status. Like we're all, we're all, we're all monkeys, right? We're all monkeys essentially. Mm -hmm. And we're all struggling for status all the time. And so if you are like, like you think to yourself, how could an aster ever be unhappy when they have all this power? Well, it's because they're looking at the Fricks and they're looking at the Vanderbilts and they're looking at the Rockefellers and they're looking at the Rothschilds. And so like your yardstick for comparison starts to warp and change, you know, when you are, when you are comparing yourself in, in different ways, um, which is a little hard to understand. But I think that like once your basic needs are met, that is when the question of status comes into play and, you know, no amount, arguably no amount of status is ever going to be enough because even if you are arguably on the top of whatever heap it is that you have identified, you're going to be worried about being toppled off the top of that heap. Like Mrs. Astor, the Mrs. Astor, undisputed reigning queen of New York society, 
eventually toppled because of age, because of the arrival of the progressive era, because of the changes in American cultural values. You know, not even the Mrs. Astor reigns forever. And so maybe just give us a little bit of perspective on how the Astor family started. It started with beaver furs. Do I did. have it? Uh, do I have it right? You do. It started with uh, the son of a butcher, John Jacob Astor, who left a town uh, in Waldorf, Germany, which is now mainly known for uh, white asparagus, for the total disappearance of its entire Jewish population, and for the birth of John Jacob Astor. And he first went to England where he spent some time working with his brother and probably learned English. Um, one thing we can say about John Jacob Astor is that he really had an ear for languages, um, because once he arrived in North America, he learned a number of indigenous languages, um, which I think is pretty impressive. So he anglicized his name, he, uh, he got some money together, and he then decided he would emigrate. He had another brother who was already in New York. And so he boarded a boat, a ship that was bound for Baltimore. He had a load of flutes with him, and one version that we found suggested that he met someone on this ship from bound to Baltimore who, just by <coughs> chance, let him know like how much money there was to be made in furs. That furs were um, in such high demand that you could get profits of something like 900%, like something absurd. And so he ended up, after he finally landed in Baltimore, he made his way up to New York City and he had a number of odd jobs. And then, and then he ended up going into business for himself because he would buy up like an odd fur whenever he came upon one. And then he was able to make enough money just from like buying these furs together. He ends up, gets married to a woman who has a, I think her family had a boarding house. So she'd been in New York for kind of a long time and she ended up having a really good eye for furs. And so they kind of just, they just go into business together basically. And he is hardy enough that he travels up the Hudson river and into the interior of New York state and starts trading on his own account, and he's able to trade with the indigenous people in their own language. And very soon, he he just has the most ruthless business practices, and ends up building, um, you know, some of the biggest corporations that that America has ever seen. And that is where the Astor money came from. <clears throat> and then he transitioned to real estate. So from Beaver Furs to New York real estate is, from is kind of Beaver Furs to to real estate, and so he he quickly like his his initial plan had been he wanted to. This is a sort of a long involved story, but shortly after the opening, arguably of the North American interior with the, the Lewis and Clark expedition, which made it all the way to the West Coast, um, there was strong incentive to try to find an easier way to trade with China, because China through the 18th century, China had all of these goods that 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 the West wanted. They had porcelain, they had silk, you know, there was opium, they had they had all this tea, of course, was a big one. Um, but in order to trade with China, you had to go, you had to sail a ship all the way down around Cape Horn and all the way up through the Pacific. And so there were a number of different attempts um, through the 18th and into the 19th century to find an easier way to get to the East. So there was the look for the Northwest Passage, which of course doesn't really exist, although it probably will in our lifetime. Um, there was an attempt by uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt actually tried to have paddle boats that would go across Panama. You know, he tried to come up with a way before the Panama Canal. He tried to come up with a way to expand his shipping empire into the Pacific. And uh, and so Astor's idea was to establish a trading post on in what is now the state of Oregon. Um, he established what is now Astoria, Oregon, 
um, setting for the film The Goonies. I only just recently. Oh, really? When I, when okay. I showed. I know um, Goonies. Yeah. I showed that film to my son recently, and it, I was like, "Whoa, it's a set in Astoria, Oregon. That's crazy." Um, so he was going to establish a trading post there, and he sent an overland expedition and a seagoing expedition, and they were supposed to rendezvous and start a trading post. And the idea was that that trading post that he would essentially dominate all Pacific trade that he would it would be like the landing like the equivalent of New York but for the West whereas New York's trade was you know east east transatlantic focused um, that Astoria would be a separate country in effect and would trade with all of the Pacific Rim and that then would like there'd be a <coughs> network of trading posts along the rivers and pathways through the interior and that that the boundary of Astoria would be basically the Mississippi River, the Continental Divide, and, that, and then the United States would continue on the east. That was his vision. Um, that vision did not come to pass. And so instead, he ended up dissolving the Pacific Fur Company, which he had founded um, in service of this enterprise. And he started plowing his money into New York City real estate, which he'd been doing for a time, but he on his deathbed reportedly expressed regret that he hadn't bought more New York City real estate. Uh, and it happens to have been just a beautiful accident of timing. He was there and he had the money just when waves of serious immigration started to happen into the 18, you know, 30s and into the 1840s, 50s and 60s. And, you know, we've all seen, I assume you've seen Gangs of New York, you mm -hmm. know, that, that sort of like, the first time I saw Gangs of New York, I was like, this is preposterous. But the, the older I get and the more I know about New York in the 19th century, the more realistic that film seems, astonishingly enough. Um, the Old Brewery, for instance, which is like that, that sort of warren of rooms, that was a real place wow. that, that had 150 families living in it, which is staggering. Um, so Astor ended up um, kind of coming up with a genius, albeit brutal, system of real estate ownership and management so he would buy a parcel and then he would lease it to a sub landlord for a long-term lease the sub landlord would be in charge of building houses on it and then making money from the houses now i am a novelist i am not a business person i have zero business acumen it's a tragedy i wish i had some i have none if I built a house on a on you know a piece of property, I would want to make it nice, you know. I'd want to keep it up. I'd want to make it pretty. I would rent it out. That's not how you make money from being a landlord in New York City. You make money by building a house in front and then a house in back and packing in as many people as you possibly can. And then because the houses would revert to Astor's ownership when the lease was up, um, they had no incentive to maintain them. The sub-landlord had no incentive to maintain them. and But similarly, as they so the sub-landlord would be in charge of improving the land. But then once the land was improved, just like in the game of Monopoly, Astor would charge them more rent for the land because now there was a house on it, even though the house would revert back to Astor's ownership once the lease was up. And so this is when you start to see the growth of buildings that are tenements that are designed to house the maximum number of people. Um, because also New York City in the 19th century, as it's getting waves of immigration, mostly from Europe, you know, so you get, you know, the Irish potato famine, you have waves of Irish immigration, waves of Italian immigration, waves of Germans, and you have wave, waves of um, Jewish immigration from the, like, fleeing the Soviet pogroms and things like that. So as things change in Europe, immigrants arrive in New York. Well, New York 
until uh, New York is hard to get around in. It's very hilly. And now we have public transit, but for a long time, there wasn't public transit. So everyone had to live close by their work. They didn't have the technology for bridges until the 1880s. So it's not like you could live in Brooklyn and commute. Um, there was a time when steam locomotives would go overland through the streets in New York City. Can you imagine wow. with that many people? Um, and so that like very soon, New York City tried to had to look into ways to make more public transit. Um, but the reason that Manhattan became so concentrated was because they didn't really have the technology to grade the land. Manhattan is very rocky and very hilly. That's why it's able to support these really tall skyscrapers because the bedrock there is, is really strong and thick. That means it's hard to get through. So New York wasn't really, Manhattan wasn't really able to expand um, until the later part of the 19th century. And they weren't able to get rapid transit going until the very late 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century. So everybody who arrived had to pack themselves into the same few square miles of lower Manhattan um, in order to live close to their work. In Astor, we actually have a chapter that I'm really proud of, which is about a guy um, who I stumbled upon in the clipping files at the New York Times, uh, New, York, uh, the New York Public Library, whose name was John Jacob Astor and who had been born in Waldorf, Germany, and he was an immigrant. But he immigrated in the 1850s, and he was a cigar roller. And so I, I thought, wow, this is fascinating. And they're, they're New York, when he died, he died in a poorhouse. And, and newspapers took great notice of the fact that this guy with this very storied, wealthy name had died in a poorhouse. And I was like, what is his story? Who is he? And so, I, you know, fortunately, with the way that records are digitized now, it was pretty straightforward to reconstitute what we could know about his life. You know, we could see where he lived from the census records and from his Civil War draft card and, and things like that. And so we have a chapter that is like the other John Jacob Astor, the parallel John Jacob Astor, because, again, like talking in broad strokes about cultural myths and such like, you know, the myth of the up by the bootstraps successful immigrant is one that we are all very invested in. And John mm -hmm. Jacob Astor, the first one, is the ultimate example of that success story that he arrived with nothing. Well, he didn't arrive with nothing. He arrived with networks and having been trained and with a strong stomach because he was already a butcher's son and with a pack of flutes on his back. And so he arrived with actually a lot going for him, but fine. He arrived with not a lot and then made this giant fortune. Well, Here's another immigrant story, and it's a much more common immigrant story. A guy arrives with not much and works very, very hard his entire life and dies. Mm -hmm. And that is a very common immigrant story, perhaps the most common immigrant story. So the other aster that would be great if you could touch on is a lot of us have seen the movie Titanic. Sure. Um, yeah. If you watch Titanic, you may recognize one of the uh, actors in the show being a star from Young and the Restless, um, who's very well known. But he is, he is portraying John Jacob Astor, who was the richest person on the Titanic, who um, ultimately died on the, yeah. on the Titanic. He did. He did. Give us, give us two cents on, um, on, on this Astor, who I'm guessing... I would I would recommend you go back and maybe rewatch Titanic uh, yeah. on a Saturday night when you don't have much going on, and and pay a little bit more attention after after reading this book on on mm -hmm. on, on on this particular Astor. Yeah, Jack Astor. Jack Astor was the Mrs. Astor's son, 
and he was William Waldorf, grumpy William Waldorf's cousin. And he and William Waldorf um, didn't get along. And Jack Astor was nicknamed in the press Jack Astor. <laughs> right, okay. 19th century press was not kind. Um, but I think he kind of deserved it in all honesty. Um, yeah, he was he was sort of a he was sort of a prickly character. He ended up um he had a very unhappy marriage and then he ended up um divorcing. So this was sort of a moment when um divorce was still considered shocking. Um he divorced uh his wife Ava, who is the woman on the cover of Aster. She was a terrible, insufferable snob by all accounts. Jack ended up divorcing her and marrying a teenager, um, Madeline Force Talmadge, Talmadge Force, Madeline Force. Um, she was basically the same age as his son, Vincent. Wow. Um, Vincent is the one who ended up being the last scion of the American Astor family. Um, and so they, so there was a flurry of scandal. It was just like, it was, it just rocked, the scandal rocketed through New York society. And so Jack and Madeline went honeymooning in Europe on an extended honeymoon to try to flee some of the scandal. Um, they traveled all over. They traveled in Egypt and, and so on and so forth. Um, and then, but then Madeline became pregnant and she wanted to have the baby back in New York. And so rather tragically, I think for them, they um, booked, the, booked their passage on Titanic. And what was interesting to me about that, so Jack did die in the Titanic. Madeline survived and her baby was was born a few months later and was referred to as the Titanic baby. The baby was also named John Jacob Astor and he went by Jakey. Uh, in the film version from 1997, Jack Astor is called JJ. And I assume it's because um, the main character in Titanic is called Jack, Jack and Rose, and it would have been too confusing to have two Jacks in one scene. Um, what was interesting to me is that in the film from 1997, Jack Astor is a very glancing character. He He's, you know, almost blink and you'll miss it. You know, we have a mm -hmm. con conversation with him and then we see him about to be washed to his death and then that's about it. But when Titanic went down, the loss of Jack Astor was the lead story of the whole thing. Like it was Jack Astor lost also a bunch of other The picture's people. in the book, right? The picture yeah. from the newspaper's in the book. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, he, was, he was the lead character. And so one thing that was interesting to me was that of all the Astors, he's the one who's been dramatized the most because Titanic has been dramatized so many times. And so we actually look at a few different ways that Jack is represented on film. Because believe it or not, the first Titanic film started shooting while they were still pulling bodies out of the water. It's like a short film. Wow. It's a silent film. And the only they don't actually name him, but the only recognizable person is a wealthy guy who's clearly meant to be Jack Astor. Um, and I think the most stunning to me personally representation of Jack Astor is that there is a Nazi propaganda film called Titanic, um, in which Jack Astor is represented as the villain. It's kind of shy. like he's a huge character, and the whole point of the film is that um, is that American wealth has corrupted European aristocracy, and also that uh, it's American wealth and greed that caused, like, it's a short, it's a stock short-selling scheme that causes Titanic to take unnecessary risks, which then, that then causes all this death. And there's only one character with enough moral courage to call out what's happening, and it is, of course, a Nazi officer who doesn't, you know, didn't exist in real life. Like, I hate, 
the, this film is also called Titanic. It was directed by, um, I guess, by Joseph Goebbels. And it is, I'm dismayed to say it is actually a stunning film. It's gripping, it's exciting. And many of the images in it are actually then reproduced in James Cameron's film. Like the, the shot of um, Lytoller sort of from below waving his hands to lower down the, the lifeboats. Um, that is a shot that's taken from this Nazi propaganda film. And so I was interested by the fact that Jack Astor goes from being like the headline of the loss of Titanic the world over to being like the villain in the 1940s. And then by the time we get to the 1990s, he is a footnote, like barely a footnote, mm -hmm. really. Um, and it's that, that was sort of striking to me that um, that it's just kind of an interesting side note, like, oh, this, there was a really rich guy. One of the Astros went down on Titanic. But we don't think about him. We don't know anything about him, or, you know, worry about him or, or anything. And I like would that. say to anybody, <clears throat> Catherine just provided a great background. The next time you watch Titanic, you will have a much better understanding of that particular Astro and a much it, a very interesting backstory on on that particular that particular character. Now, mm -hmm. the next Aster um, we need to just briefly touch on is Vincent, mm -hmm. and this is one of the best stories in the entire in the entire book. This, the book is filled with great stories. Thank you. But Vincent and his marriages, and I am oh, just yeah. going to replay here here uh, Catherine the story from the book, and you're going to give us your 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 take on this. Okay, Poor so Vincent Vincent is on his second wife. Yep. And I guess things are not going very well between him and his second wife. Nope. And it sounds like they want a divorce. Well, Vincent is fine with the divorce, provided his wife finds him a partner, mm -hmm. which I've never heard of an, a divorce ending in that way. Um, but apparently that worked for, for Vincent. So interestingly, they two of them now mm -hmm. go on the warpath to try and find a partner for, um, for Vincent. Mm -hmm. And they found a lady. Now, unfortunately, with this lady, she had money, which mm -hmm. was probably not a good thing in this case, because the one one of the she things Vincent the brought, to, yeah, well, one of the things Vincent brought to the table was money. Mm -hmm. um, and after a short courtship, Vincent finally decided to pop the question. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to just briefly outline how this conversation went because this is uh, hilarious. Yeah, Vincent asked the lady, "Will you marry me?" And the lady gives legendary response number one, marry you, I don't even like you. What a great response. Now, Vincent, uh, credit to Vincent, tough. he is not deterred. He's he not, is not, not deterred at all. So how, what is his retort? His, his retort, retort is, is I'm sorry, I drink and I smoke heavily. Now I'm paraphrasing here. Mm -hmm. And my health is poor. Doctors say I have a max of three years. So don't, don't, don't worry. And, and again, the lady's response is classic, is, but Vincent, what if the doctors are wrong? What if they're so wrong? <laughs> that, what, what a great so response. So, so, Catherine, my question to you is, was there a further conversation here? Um, did Vincent actually <laughs> provide a response to the lady's questions? What if the doctors were wrong? What was going to happen in that scenario? I, I don't I don't actually know, but he ended up not marrying that woman. He ended up marrying Brooke. Um, Brooke instead, who was widowed and who did need the money and who also apparently was pragmatic enough to uh, be willing to take Vincent on. It's funny because when Anderson and I were working on the book, like 
So Anderson's mom knew Vincent and thought he was, quote, dreadful, unquote, which according to Anderson is like was the worst thing that she could ever say about anybody. I, of course, never met Vincent, nor did I meet Brooke. Um, in my reading about him, though, I, I feel sorry for Vincent. I really do. He's, you know, he, by all accounts, was, I mean, no doubt he was difficult, right? He definitely drank. Um, he contracted mumps while he was on his honeymoon with his first wife, and, um, and the mumps made him sterile. And so he was the, wow. he ended up being essentially the last pastor. Um, although he, of course, had a much younger half-brother, Jakey. Um, Vincent was Jack Astor's son, the Jack who was lost on Titanic. And so he lost his dad at a young age. Yeah. He, he was only 21 years old. Yeah. Or actually, he was 20. He was 20 when he lost his dad and then very quickly turned 21, so attained his majority. And so he was the youngest person to essentially assume head of the Astor family. And by all accounts, he just wasn't prepared. He was He was a kid and also, I think, sort of emotionally immature even in addition to his to his youth. And, you know, there are a few little details about Vincent that, that make me feel sorry for him. And one of them is that he um, had to identify his father's body. His father's was one of the bodies that was retrieved. Not all the bodies from Titanic were retrieved, but um, Vincent, uh, excuse me, J uh, Jack Astor's was, and he was identified in part by the monogram on his shirt. And apparently he had a, stop, a, a watch, a pocket watch, which, of course, was stopped, and Vincent carried it on him the rest of his life, ostensibly. So here's this kid. He's got this stepmother who is his same age. So essentially, like, also a kid, right? And, and he's got this half-brother, and, you know, who he gives no money to whatsoever, because he, the, the stated reason is because he's not even convinced that, that Jack was actually Jakey's father. I mean... Let's leave that aside because we don't know one way or the other. But for whatever reason, um, Jakey and Vincent never had a relationship. And, um, you know, it's one of those ways where money can poison relationships, I guess. Um, so my impression of Vincent is that he's this, like, rich, eccentric, and kind of solitary guy. Like, he's in, and naive. Like, he was obsessed with trains. He had, like a, like, a model train that you could ride on. He, like, had all these weird little obsessions. He had a big yacht called Norma Hall and I read a number of his like ship logs of voyages that they took because they're at the New York Public Library and they so he goes on these really extravagant cruises in the 30s by the way his wife is not along on any of these cruises his girlfriend is and his friends and their girlfriends and they go with for months at a time. They go like, you know, through the Panama Canal and, and, and into the Pacific. And, you know, he has these kinds of like scientific pretexts for why he's doing these these trips. I like the practical um, jokes that he liked to play on the on his guests. Those were yeah, those, those, those were real. Those, those are real. Like I could imagine some people might not take that the right uh, the, oh, in, yeah. in, in the right way. Right. One of his practical jokes, practical jokes and heavy quotes was that like on one of his guests, he um, he figured out what that guest's stock holdings mainly consisted of. And then like made it seem like because they their communications were all over radio or short, shortwave radio, I guess. Um, and so he made it seem like the guest had suddenly like lost all his money while the guest was stuck on this on his yacht. Yeah. Um, and it pr proved to be a joke, like hilarious, except that that's totally something that could happen. And like, you know, it's and and of course, there's also an element of control. Like it's his yacht. It's his friends. He he's 
calling the shots. Like one wonders if he is in a position to understand how cruel a joke like that is when he is the one who has the most money and he is the one who's setting all the terms of their of that social engagement. Like he sounds terrible, but he also sounds like there was, but I also, maybe part of my pity for him is that there was no way he could not be terrible. And, but interestingly, he does do some things that I find rather, um, kind of rehabilitate him in my mind a little bit. And one of that is he was so naive. He had no idea what kinds of real estate holdings he was making his money from, from the Astor office. He discovered that they, shocker, owned tenements that were squalid. Like, and I'm talking in the 20th century, you know, the, the middle part of the 20th century. And so he ended up, um, he, he owned places that were being used as brothels which he had no idea until he sort of figured it out. And then, of course, the people in the family office are like, what do you mean you didn't know? Like, everybody knows this. And so it was actually Vincent who ended up unwinding a lot of the Astor investment in this subpar housing and, and kind of turning it over pretty much at cost to New York City. And in some respects, the Astor Holdings are what became the New York City Housing Authority, NYCHA, the public housing in New York. He also um, put some money towards things that would not turn a profit but were good for the public, like playgrounds building playgrounds and he ended up doing the only like he was the first astor who actually except for the founding of the astor library he's the first astor who gave away money and he ended up founding the vincent astor foundation wow and so it was control of the vincent astor foundation that ended up passing to brooke his third wife which she deployed obviously to her social advantage and she enjoyed the publicity and the acclaim that came with that but you can't really argue with the fact that, that they really did rain money. She she focused on raining money on New York City because New York City had created the Astro Fortune in the first place, which of course it had. Um, not just not just beavers, but also frankly, like the lives of working people who had arrived in New York and made New York what it was. Yeah. That is where the Astro money came from. It came from the backs of workers. Well, Look, again, I would recommend to everybody. Catherine and I have just touched on the surface of the book. Um, there is lots more asters to to dig into, um, mm -hmm. lots more stories. And like literally, I had pages and pages of stuff to go through. Um, and we have just scratched. And even that was scratching the surface. And we didn't cover, I don't know if we covered half of, of all the stuff <laughs> that was on my, uh, you know, in my notes. <laughs> but again, that the background you gave was was phenomenal. So definitely take a read of the book. And again, if you're looking for a nice fiction, nonfiction combination, go ahead and pick up a true account as well, because you will enjoy both of those books. Thank you. And maybe to wrap up, Catherine, just give us um, what's your outlook look like these days? What's yeah. uh, you, you know, you got you, you know, what's your next project? Is there another family that because I can imagine the list would be quite long. You had mentioned after this that a whole mm -hmm. bunch of people contacted you to yeah. write their stories. But what's what what's next for Catherine Howe? Is it another uh, fiction book or are we talking nonfiction or a combination? What? What's uh, coming down the pipe? We're going to see. I mean, I, I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm tired. Like, <laughs> you know, like I had two books come out this fall and that was that was a lot. Um, and I have a book coming out in April also, which is called The Penguin Book of Pirates. And the Penguin is coming from Penguin Classics. Uh, and the Penguin Book of Pirates is a primary source reader that essentially goes along with a true account. So it's as if you said, hey, Catherine, what are some of the coolest primary sources that you read about pirates while you were researching this novel? And it has contextualizing essays and annotations and um, and actually a couple of different excerpts from fictional accounts of pirates, because one of the things that 
as you probably gather from the title, A True Account, I'm very interested in the sort of mixing of fact and fiction or myth and, and myth and fact, um, particularly when it comes to stories of piracy. And there's a lot to be said about that. So, so I will be promoting that book when it comes out. And in the meantime, I'm starting to think in a couple of new directions. You know, I think, I think my next project is going to be a novel. I think it might be, um, since I've been spending so much time in the Gilded Age, I've been trying to, I've been thinking about kind of a, a Gilded Age bonfire of the vanities. You know, because I've always admired um, Edith Wharton, but Edith Wharton only writes about one strata of people. And one of the things that I don't know how many of your listeners will remember Bonfire of the Vanities, that was Tom Wolfe's big New York Society novel from the 1980s, um, in which there's crime at the center of it. And but it also kind of explores some of the intersection of unlikely characters in New York City. And so I've been thinking about ways that to to offer, as we do in Aster to some extent. You know, we give a few pictures of like how the other half is living in New York City in the in the Gilded Age. Um, but I'd be interested in trying to do kind of a big meaty society novel in the Gilded Age that has like people who are living different. How long different Ellen does it take from from page from starting on page one to it hitting the store in Amazon? Um, like how long, how, how long does it take to, to, how long is that process from, a it, you know, writing a book? It can really vary. Cause I'm, I'm such a research heavy writer. You know, it'll, it'll t- like, there's, there's the research stage and then there's the drafting stage and then there's the editorial stage. Um, each of those can be kind of a substantial process. In fact, often the drafting, the initial drafting can be the fastest. Um, so it, it can vary. I mean, it'll take, you'll probably see another book from me and I'm going to guess 2025 okay. at the earliest. Um, but in the meantime, uh, anyone who wants to keep up with me can find me on the web. I'm at katherinehow.com with my grumpy disclaimers for my contact page. Um, I am also on Facebook. Uh, I am on Twitter still, technically. I'm on Instagram with lots of pictures of books and to a lesser extent pictures of sailing and sailboats, which is my only hobby. And um, what else am I on? Goodreads. Basically, in any platform that you enjoy that's not TikTok. I'm too Gen X for TikTok. I can't cope. I'm not on TikTok, TikTok or YouTube, but um, you can find me on any other platform that you wish. Um, well, great. Well, Catherine, on behalf of uh, CSI, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank Again, you. I know you're extremely busy, and we very much appreciate you, you taking the time. Um, to everybody listening, buy the books. They're a great read. Um, and, and again, thank you very much for taking the time, Catherine. We very much appreciate it. Uh, today. I had fun. I had fun. Thank you for inviting me, Scott. Oh, you're welcome.